0: Welcome back, True Crime Army, and welcome to Military Murder. I am your host, Margot. And for those of you who are listening for the first time, this podcast is about murders committed by military members, veterans, or any murder where a military member is involved. This is not a conspiracy podcast, just a true crime podcast based on people in the military. And just so everyone remembers, I am not an investigator. I am just a storyteller. I have had a lot of people ask me lately why I made this podcast, and to be honest, I made this podcast because we could be anyone in these true crime tales, right? Perpetrator or victim. And I wanted to tell these stories so that people who came across my podcast could use these cases as cautionary tales. Don't become this person. Today, I compiled a group of cases dealing with a social issue we have as a society, military or not. Not only do we like to drink alcohol, but some people, they don't see any issue with drinking and driving. And listen, alcohol is fine. During the week, we wake up, we get ready for work, we grind, grind, grind until it's time to leave. And then we do it all again the next day until the weekend. And it's no wonder that we like to let our hair down and let loose after work and on weekends. And some of us, we do that by having a few drinks. And so whenever we go to the doctor and we fill out that questionnaire about drinking, we always say, oh, yeah, only one to two drinks a week. When in reality, maybe some of us are drinking five or six or seven drinks a week. And so listen, don't worry. I won't admit or deny that I've been there before, but can you imagine if we were truthful on those forms, we'd all be required to be in treatment. But come on, alcohol is everywhere and it's hard to hide from alcohol. You're at a kid's birthday party, moms are drinking wine, dads are drinking beer. You're at a holiday party and most of the cool kids are gathered by the bar. Girls' night, alcohol. Boys' night, alcohol. New Year's, alcohol. You get the picture. And alcohol is fine. But this episode isn't about alcohol, it's about drinking and driving. I launched this episode today specifically because it's before the holidays and because holidays are filled with joy, but they're also filled with stress, sadness, and anger. Stress about the holidays and the expectations. Sadness about someone we loved and lost or anger at a past we cannot change or a war we cannot unsee. And so with all those feelings, we drink. And when we drink, things get fuzzy. So here are a few cautionary tales. Today, I am going to bring you five cases that began as a great night and ended with a dead stranger. Someone who by chance meeting was minding their own business when someone too drunk to use common sense and spend $30 on an Uber made one idiotic decision to get behind the wheel of a 3,000 pound death mobile. Some may say DUIs are about luck. If a cop pulls you over because you're swerving, you may get a slap on the wrist. If you hit an inanimate object with your car, the sentence may be more serious. But if you kill someone, well, there's no telling what the judge will hand down. And in the cases I discussed today, it was a murder charge. And if you're thinking about tuning me out because this doesn't sound like a cool episode, don't, I could save your life or someone else's. In fact, share this episode with your booziest friend. And if you don't have a boozy friend, well, let's dig in anyway. My first story is about a U.S. Marine named Elijah Lee Ferguson. My sources for this story came from the California Fourth District Appellate Court decision an L.A. Times article by Time Raggin and the O.C. Register. In 2007, Elijah was starting his life as a soon to be father with his expecting wife, Carla. Before Elijah's son was born, though, he got the news that he would be deploying to Iraq and off he went. It was his duty, after all, as a Marine. While in Iraq, he was a mortar specialist and he manned a machine gun in the turret of a Humvee. Unfortunately, due to the timing of the deployment, Elijah would not be present for his son's birth. And this, of course, would put a strain on anyone's mind. After the four-month deployment, Elijah was posted at Camp Pendleton in California. Elijah was one of, quote, the lucky few, end quote, Lance Corporals, because he was allowed to live off base because he had a wife and a baby. And Elijah lived about 54 miles north of the military base in a town called Santa Ana. The commute would be difficult for this young couple, especially because they only had one car, but they made it work. Either Elijah would drive himself to work and back, or Carla would take him and then pick him up later. And then on some occasions, Carla would drop him off and Elijah would just stay on base in the dorms with one of his friends. And this was routine, which to me seems really draining, not only as a person, but as a spouse. It just seems like a lot. So anyone who has ever been in the military or ever worked for a large corporation knows that safety briefings are a big deal. Well, briefings at Camp Pendleton were no different. And the Marines were keen on giving liberty briefings, which are briefings to remind everyone to be safe, either on a long holiday or on the weekend or whatever. And in these briefings, they discuss the dangers of drinking and driving, not getting enough sleep before going on long road trips, things of that nature. On February 22nd, 2008, Elijah attended one of these safety briefings. And DUIs just happened to be the topic of discussion on this day. So at this briefing, Marines briefed that the Marine Corps needed all their Marines to be mentally and physically prepared for the fight. And a DUI would mean almost automatically being removed from that fight. They also provided statistics, including the fact that usually a drunk person in a DUI accident walks away unscathed, whereas the innocent bystanders usually die or are badly injured. The unit was so well-prepared, they had these little pre-printed Arrive Alive cards that they gave to each and every person in attendance. And the card had a cab number on it that these members could call at whatever hour, and a cab would arrive where they're at, pick them up, and take them back to base. And all you had to do was call the number, someone would pick you up, drop you off, no questions asked. So as I was researching, Camp Pendleton spent a considerable amount of time and effort into reducing DUIs on base. There were signs and banners warning of DUI dangers everywhere. And this is not uncommon, but cars which had been pretty mangled from car accidents were occasionally displayed at key areas around base, basically to discourage drinking and driving. And anyone who has been in the military has seen this. In fact, I think even high schools do this around prom time now. So on February 22nd, 2008, Elijah had driven himself to work. According to the district attorney, between 1 and 3 p.m., after this Liberty briefing, Elijah was on base drinking. After a few hours of drinking with one buddy, he then met up with a different group of friends around 4 p.m. His new group of friends could tell that he was intoxicated. And at one point, Elijah tries to get in his car to drive home and his buddies are like... No, no way. Not on our watch, buddy. And so they didn't let him get in his car. Around 5 p.m., Elijah went to a different friend's room. And we're going to call this other friend the new guy. And so the new guy is, well, new. He's never deployed before. He's younger than Elijah. And so Elijah outranks him. The new guy could tell right away that Elijah was drunk because of how he was slurring his speech. And the new guy tried to question Elijah's level of drunkenness. But Elijah wasn't having anything of it. And he basically just like left. Elijah then returns to the new guy's room between 7 and 8 p.m., roughly two and a half hours after he left the first time. And Elijah is still drunk, and it's unclear if he, he continued to drink or if he had stopped drinking by this point. And Elijah walks straight to the new guy's bed, and he passes out. The new guy didn't mind, though, because he was busy watching a movie with another Marine. And in fact, he was happy because he feared that Elijah would try to drive home after waking up. And so the new guy was so concerned, in fact, that he asked a senior Marine to take Elijah's keys. But this wouldn't be as easy as just grabbing the keys from the table and hiding them. Nope, not that easy at all. In fact, the car keys were in Elijah's pocket, and the Marines went over and slowly grabbed the keys from Elijah's pocket. And after the keys were secured, one Marine woke Elijah up to have a chat. Elijah wasn't happy, and he pleaded that he was okay, and he wanted to drive home, and he was really, really okay. But the senior Marine didn't play that game. I imagine he said something like, hell, we'll have to freeze over first before I give you these keys back. And, you know, that's not really what he said. But in not so many words, that's probably what he said. So that Marine then locked the car keys in a cabinet. Elijah thought, OK, cool, fine, whatever. And he tries to sober up. He chugs water. Hello? It was his wife. They chatted. In the meantime, one Marine found Elijah a room to spend the night in. And so when he comes back to the room to tell Elijah, Elijah was no longer on the phone, but he was a little dazed. Hello? It was his wife again. And this time, the other Marines could tell the couple was arguing. This fight made Elijah really antsy. He wanted to go home now even more than before, and he wanted to smooth things over with his wife. But it appeared his wife didn't want him home. Elijah didn't care. He was getting home that night. So the Marines, they come up with this spectacular plan, right? Two sober Marines. One sober Marine is going to drive Elijah's car and the other sober Marine is going to drive his own car. They're going to take Elijah home, drop him and his car off, and then the two of them will hop in one car and head back to base. Easy peasy lemon squeezy, right? Not so fast. One Marine actually spoke with Elijah's wife and she was adamant he's been drinking. Don't bring him home. So now the Marines are back to plan A. Elijah had to stay on base. At that point, Elijah didn't seem to care anymore and he just falls asleep again. Everything seemed to be squared away. So the senior Marine who had everything under control left and he left the most senior Marine in charge. Elijah then at some point woke up and began asking for his keys, begging, Please, 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 look, I'm fine. I had water. I slept. I'm good. And so the Marines were like, nope, the answer is still no. Okay, fine, fine. Elijah says, I need to get something in my car. So the Marine watchman is like, all right, cool. I'm going to open the car for you. So he walks his little rear down to the car, opens the car for Elijah, and Elijah like probably stomps over like a little sad, bad boy or whatever, looks through his car, fumbles through some papers, and takes nothing. Elijah then, standing next to his car, Begs the Marine, please let me drive home. I drank water, I slept, I'm good. And the Marine says, No, listen, no, not on my watch. I'm not giving you these keys. You're not driving home today. Between 10 and 11 p.m., though, Elijah went back to the new guy's room. And Elijah made a deal with the new guy. He said, Go get my keys. You drive me home, spend the night at my house, and I'll bring you back to base in the morning. But the new guy wasn't really keen on this idea. He's like, just stay here. But then Elijah got upset and told the new guy, hey, new guy, I outrank you. Go get my keys right now. The new guy handed Elijah the keys. Elijah was on his way, driving his car alone. Sadly, the new guy was fully prepared to take Elijah home, but once the new guy had the keys in hand, Elijah bullied his way into getting them, even physically bowing up to the new guy in a threatening manner and insisting he outranked him. And at that very moment, it would only be minutes before another family's life would be forever changed. Hi everyone! For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4am workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4am and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru, Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code Mama Margo at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your cart and use my code Mama Margo. that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Elijah was now on his way to his house in Santa Ana, which, according to the GPS on my phone, is 53 miles north on I-5 North. And it is not a short trip either. It's an hour drive. At 11.53 p.m., 63-year-old Dr. Michael Sain, a Newport Coast radiologist, and his wife, Grace, were in their Aston Martin on the corner of Jamboree Road and MacArthur Boulevard in Newport Beach, California. They're stopped at a red light, probably just conversing about what they had done that night. When all of a sudden, drunk Elijah didn't see the red light as he sped at about 75 miles per hour, slamming his Dodge Caliber right into the Sane's stopped car. First responders arrived. Dr. Sane, the driver of the Aston Martin, was taken to the hospital and died 30 minutes after the accident. Grace was taken to a different hospital where she was treated for brain and back trauma. Elijah suffered a broken ankle and some internal bleeding. Newport Beach police officer Troy Zeman arrived at the crash site after all of the people from the vehicles had been transported to the hospital. Immediately after the accident, an eyewitness said, quote, Ferguson looked normal but did seem disoriented and confused, kind of like a person who had just been in an accident, end quote. Officer Troy examined the scene and then he came to speak to Elijah around two in the morning, roughly two hours after the accident. Officer Troy saw signs that Elijah was drunk, the same signs that he would be looking for as if he had stopped someone who he suspected of drunk driving. And Elijah's eyes were reddish and watery. He had slurred speech and smelled like alcohol. But Elijah didn't appear dazed at all. He was able to speak perfectly clear to Officer Troy. But there was one big thing that Elijah didn't remember, the accident. He said, yeah, yes, officer. Yes, I did drink today. I had two beers. He went through the facts. I left Camp Pendleton to go home to Santa Ana and now I'm here. So what happened? A blood sample revealed that hours after the accident, Elijah's blood alcohol level, BAC, was 012 the legal cutoff is 0.08. Toxicologists would extrapolate that he had been between 0.16 and 0.17% at the time of the accident. And extrapolate is when math and science people, they do this math to provide an educated guess as to what the blood alcohol level was at the time of the accident. So I'm going to find a good article about it and about extrapolation and post it together with my resources if you want to learn more about that. Toxicologists use more than one number, though, when discussing toxicology, they calculate a range. The lower number reflects a BAC prediction for someone who is an occasional drinker, maybe having one or two drinks a week. The higher blood alcohol level or BAC prediction predicts the BAC level for someone who has a higher alcohol tolerance. So maybe someone who has three to four drinks a night every night for the whole month. In Elijah's case, it was predicted that Elijah was between 016 and 0.21% at the time of the accident. The speed limit on the road where the accident occurred was actually 50 miles per hour, and he slammed into the Aston Martin going 75 miles an hour. Elijah was charged with three felony crimes. One count of second-degree murder, one count of DUI-causing injury, and one count of driving with a BAC of 0.08 or more. His trial began in December of 2009. By the start of the trial, as reported by the OC Register, Elijah had already been discharged from the Marine Corps. I imagine murder charges for a DUI case are not the easiest to prove in court. But just so everyone knows the burden that the prosecution held in this particular case, here goes. And this is taken directly from the appellate court decision. In order to even get to murder for for drinking and driving, the prosecution stated that there was implied malice. And in order to convince a jury, though, that this was murder and not just manslaughter, the prosecution had to prove that one, Elijah knew his conduct endangered the life of another, and two, that Elijah acted with conscious disregard for life. The prosecution presented an accident reconstruction expert who opined that after considering the scene, the pictures, and everything else, Elijah was driving 75 miles per hour on impact. Elijah's car had a data recorder and information derived from that tracker showed that his car was still accelerating at the time of impact, meaning that his his foot was practically still on the gas when he slammed into the car. And it wasn't until one-tenth of a second, one tenth of a second before impact that Elijah took his foot off the gas. Then it was the defense's turn to put on, well, their defense. Elijah pointed to his 2007 Iraq deployment, leading to increased drinking and marital problems. He suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. A friend of Elijah's testified that Elijah has always been a big drinker. And he was a big drinker before Iraq. But after Iraq, it was even worse. After Iraq, his friends say that they saw a big difference in the way he acted. He was more reserved. He drank to excess. And he usually stayed on base with his friends. And to me, this really sucks, right? Because he normally stays on base with his friends. But out of all nights that he should have stayed on base, why didn't he stay on base this one night? Why did he drive home on February 22nd? One Marine in particular had at least two conversations with Elijah before the accident. And the conversation was like, dude, you're out of control with your drinking and driving. Stop it. One Marine actually gave the jury some insight into Elijah's Iraq deployment. And he basically says it wasn't easy. They were working in an environment where they were always on high alert for roadside bombs and possibly even ambushes. Anxiety and stress were always high. Elijah's wife also testified in his defense, and she said Elijah was a social drinker when they first met. But after Iraq, he drank like a fish. And she wasn't pleased because his drinking took time away from their family. And early on, she recognized that Elijah didn't only drink a lot, but he also suffered from insomnia, nightmares, night sweats, talking in his sleep, and paranoia in public places. Carla tried to get him help, and when he didn't listen, she threatened him with divorce and even taking away their son. Carla remembered that Elijah was upset one day because he was going to be tested for PTSD. And this was a Marine's worst nightmare. A PTSD diagnosis almost definitely meant that he wouldn't be allowed to continue as a Marine. At least this is what Elijah thought. Sadly, two senior Marines confirmed Elijah's fear on the stand. They testified that Marines who are diagnosed with PTSD are treated in a different light. The stigma comes from not being able to carry a gun after the diagnosis, which for Marines usually means you can't be a Marine anymore. And after every deployment, everyone has to take this post-deployment questionnaire. And it's basically a test to test for PTSD. Well, according to the Marines who testified at Elijah's trial, Marines will chat among themselves on how to answer this questionnaire in a way to not trigger the PTSD test. So Carla admitted that on the night of the accident, she was home recovering from a medical procedure. And to be honest, she was freaking livid that instead of coming home and helping with their child, Elijah was out gallivanting and drinking. You know, fair enough, Carla. I can see where you're coming from. She said something to the effect of, You know what, Elijah? Don't come home. I'm packing your things and good luck seeing your kid again. At trial, Elijah submitted evidence of his PTSD diagnosis. Psychologist Nancy Kayser Boyd, she testified for the defense to explain PTSD and its manifestations. Dr. Kayser Boyd described PTSD, quote, as an anxiety disorder resulting from a significant threat to life or safety and the feelings of helplessness or horror, end quote. According to the Veterans Affairs website, one of six soldiers has PTSD. Although some other studies show it could be closer to one in three. Dr. Kaiser Boyd opined that Elijah had PTSD and a substance abuse disorder. And self-medication is very common among members experiencing PTSD symptoms. Elijah told her that most nights he had to drink to the point of passing out just to go to sleep because his insomnia and nightmares were just so bad. Further complicating the DUI case, the defense argued that Elijah had been unconscious at the time of the crash. Therefore, he couldn't have been able to form the intent to commit murder, albeit drinking alcohol was voluntary, and he did not contend this. But the court said, Hocus pocus, you were conscious. By all accounts, you had stopped drinking hours before the accident. You had food, you drank water, you slept. And on top of all of that, your brain was coherent enough to fool one of your Marine friends into opening the car door for you to get something, even though you didn't get anything. And second, your brain was coherent enough to connive a younger Marine into getting the keys and then pulling the bait and switch and bullying him into giving you your keys by virtue of rank. That doesn't sound like someone who was unconscious. In addition to this, there was the witness who saw Elijah immediately after the crash and Officer Troy, who interviewed Elijah only two hours after the accident, and they both said that he was completely coherent. The court relied on all of those factors in deciding a verdict. On December 9th, 2009, a jury convicted Elijah of all charges, including second-degree murder. During the sentencing hearing, Elijah sought to receive special consideration as a combat veteran for PTSD, but Elijah's request was denied. During sentencing, the judge heard from Grace, who was still suffering from pain due to the crash. And Grace said that she had no desire to continue living without her husband, her best friend, her soulmate. She died that night alongside her husband. Elijah apologized to Dr. Sain's family, saying, quote, I'm very sorry for everything I did and for everything I didn't do, end quote. On Friday, January 22nd, 2010, two years after Dr. Sain was killed while stopped at a red light, Superior Court Judge Ronald Bayer sentenced Elijah to 15 years to life. He will be eligible for parole in 2023. And that's the story of Dr. Sain's tragic death and the aftermath, which could have easily been avoided. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in the detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Our next story is the Air Force story of Lane Wyatt, because I don't want my listeners to think I favor Marines over any other military branch. Listen. I am an equal opportunity military true crime storyteller. Don't worry. I have future episodes lined up for each branch, including the Coast Guard. And I'm sure once the Space Force is up and running, I'll have stories about them, too, because we are all human after all. The sources for this next case were the Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson newspaper and Anchorage Daily News. And I'm going to abbreviate the Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson by saying J-Bear, which is what it's commonly known as. So... Airman First Class Lane Wyatt is a military brat. He has three brothers, was raised in an Air Force family, which means he moved a lot. During all of the military moves, he was somewhat of the wild child. He said he had to join the Air Force to get his act together. And in October 2012, he was assigned to J-Bear in Alaska as a client systems technician. And by all accounts, he was a hard charger who was going far in the military. But on Saturday, June 29th, 2013, The trajectory of Lane's life and Sitari Town Sweat's life would tragically collide and change two families forever. Sitari Town Sweat was a 20-year-old Alaska native who worked at Costco, and she had four siblings. That Saturday, she got home from work, changed into her cute outfit, snapped the selfie, posted it on social media, and off she left in her 2004 Monte Carlo, the new set of wheels that she had purchased earlier that week. Meanwhile, over in 22-year-old Lane's world, in an effort to welcome back a friend from deployment, Lane and his friends had dinner at McDonald's and then they had a few shots back at the friend's house before heading into town and partying. There was never a plan for Lane to drive. In fact, in a Jay Bear News article, Lane said, quote, the plan was to go home and crash out. I was waiting for the season premiere of Dexter, end quote. True Crime Army. Lane is one of us. Who doesn't love Dexter? So Lane and his friends danced and drank and had an amazing time at the bars. They called Airmen Against Drunk Driving, which is like a volunteer Uber service for military members. And it's a great way to ensure your airmen get home safe. So Lane and his friends call Airmen Against Drunk Driving and they arrive home safely. So they're at the house and the fun continues. They partied until the sun came out. And then all of a sudden, two friends call it quits, like, hey, it's been a long night and a long morning, and we're heading home. And their house was about half a mile away. So Lane thought, all right, cool. I'm good to drive. It's only half a mile. And so some friends fussed and said, no, 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 let's not do that. But Lane said, listen, I am fine. And they all piled in the car. As they were driving, they pulled up to a red light and the car next to them started revving up their engine, wanting a race. And so Lane was like, all right, cool, I got this, and zoom off. At the next intersection, the light was turning yellow, and Lane decided to take it, and the next thing Lane remembered. He was in a rubble, his nose was bleeding, and they were all piling out of the car, trying to figure out what happened. Lane T-boned Sitari's car in the intersection. Sitari was a designated driver that night. There were five people total in her car. Sitari died instantly. The other four were badly injured, but they couldn't remember the accident. At a nearby gas station, onlookers were joining together looking in horror at the accident scene, but they couldn't look away. Lane was going about 50 to 55 miles per hour at the time of impact. Lane's BAC was .196, double the legal limit. The police arrive and first responders had to use the jaws of life to get people out of the Tatari's car. And the scene was organized chaos. First responders doing their best to save this group of young kids' lives. And just like that, Tatari was dead and Lane was charged with one count of DUI, three counts of third-degree assault, four counts of first-degree assault, and manslaughter. Lane spent six months in jail and then was let out on supervised release with an ankle bracelet. While he was pending trial, he was administratively separated from the Air Force. But according to the acting first sergeant at the time, Lane told him, quote, get my story out there. If it saves one airman, it will be worth it, end quote. Don't worry, Lane, Margot is telling your story as a cautionary tale. Lane recalled before the DUI, sitting through a commander's call, And hearing from an airman talk about his DUI and his DUI story. And Lane sat there listening, thinking, you know, good for you, bro. But I'm never going to be that guy. And then after initially taking all the right steps, calling an airman against drunk driving, staying at the house. Boom. He became that guy. Lane ended up pleading guilty to second degree murder, one charge of first degree assault and DUI. Basically, He agreed to plead guilty to murder, which is more serious than manslaughter, in exchange for dropping three of the four first-degree assault charges. And on December 19th, 2010, Lane was sentenced to 18 years in prison. I want to highlight a few more cases that may help me really hammer home the dangers of drinking and driving. Women, you are not immune to DUIs. My resource for my next case was an article by Technical Sergeant Mike Mears with the Shepherd Air Force Base Public Affairs Office. In the early morning of June 16th, 2012, 53-year-old retired Master Sergeant Michael David Brown, who also happened to be a civilian working at the Shepherd Air Force Base, was going about his morning like he typically did. His Saturday routine consisted of taking his motorcycle out for a spin to meet up with some of his veteran buddies for breakfast and then continuing to ride. That same morning, senior airman Angelica Fall, a dental assistant at Shepherd Air Force Base, received a call that a friend she was out with the night prior was in the hospital, but she was okay and nothing was serious. But Angelica couldn't just stay in bed. She had to be with her friend. And so she grabbed her car keys and drove to the hospital. As she was driving, she wasn't 100% sure where the hospital was, but she was driving anyway. She just kind of like hopped in her car and went off. At some point, she's like, okay, I think I'm lost. And she pulls over to the shoulder. She realizes she's going the wrong way and decides to make an illegal U-turn through that grassy median that divides the sides of the road. So she was about to merge. She looked and then she took off. What just happened? Angelica was confused. She, She looked and she hadn't seen anything. What did she hit? So she got out of her car, and she hears a woman standing on the side of the road screaming bloody murder. And as Angelica looked, she saw Michael Brown on the ground and his motorcycle nearby. Angelica was frozen in disbelief. Angelica's BAC was 0.24, three times the legal limit. She later admitted that the night prior, she had roughly 20 servings of liquor And that's what she told the judge. I mean, who knows how much drinking she actually had? She did. She was charged by the military and at a court martial the following year, Angelica pled guilty to involuntary manslaughter and DUI. Angelica was sentenced to two and a half years in prison, a bad conduct discharge, and a reduction to the lowest enlisted grade. Although Angelica could have received a maximum of 10 years in prison, part of her plea agreement was not receiving any more than five years. However, for whatever reason, the military judge felt sympathy for Angelica and she only received two and a half years. And here's another story for you. On December 4th, 2011, in Hampton, Virginia, at 2.49 in the morning, a Fort Houston soldier, Jesse Evans Jr., was driving his car against traffic on I-64 when he crashed into a Ford Taurus and killed Kimberly Bryn and Sierra Smith, both college students. He injured three other people in her car. His BAC was 0.26, and that was two hours after the crash. He was convicted of aggravated involuntary manslaughter and maiming by DUI. Tragically, Jesse should have learned his lesson long before Kimberly and Sierra had to die. As the Daily Press reported that Jesse had been charged with DUI four times since 2004. And remember, the deadly DUI happened in 2011. So that means that Jesse had driven drunk and gotten caught four times before that fateful accident, but he didn't learn his lesson. Jesse was sentenced to 26 years in prison, and I imagine that the jury and the judge in this case felt zero, absolutely zero sympathy for a guy who committed the same crime before and still hadn't learned his lesson. And just one more story, and I could go on and on, but let me just give you one more story. My sources for this next story were combined from two news articles, one by Teresa Weinberg with The Courier-Journal and one by Marina Frere with W.L.K.Y. And then there was another brief story actually by W.D.R.B. In 2015, around 11 p.m., a 28-year-old soldier, Michael Tungit, had plans to meet up with his girlfriend and his mom at home. That night, for whatever reason, he got off work early. He jumped on his motorcycle, put on his helmet and made his way home. At the same time, 48-year-old military man, Monty Jaynes, was sitting in his car attempting to turn left into a gas station. Now, at the moment he chose to turn, Monty hit Michael. Michael, the one on the motorcycle, was taken to the hospital where he was in a coma for a month until he died. As reported by WDRB, immediately after the accident, the police officer who, who basically arrives at the scene says that Monty has a hard time keeping his balance, that he smelled like alcohol, and he told the police he only had one beer. But Monty's BAC was 0.19. Monty was charged with murder, but he pled guilty to reckless homicide. He agreed to serve five years. But as of the publication of this episode, he was on house arrest because, get this, The attorneys agreed to wait until Monty retired from the military before he is, quote, formally sentenced in 2020, end quote. What? Can you believe that? And the crazy part is that I've searched high and low and I was never able to find Monty's military branch nor his rank. That wraps up these DUI cases for today. Did you know that on average, a person will have driven drunk approximately 80 times before their first DUI arrest? And I got that information from the Mothers Against Drunk Driving website. When we hear about an accident free DUI, we don't really think anything of it. But when a DUI claims a life, I mean, it's painful and it seems like perpetrators get away with murder. But what happens when you're in the military and you've sat through dozens of DUI briefings warning of the dangers? Are you held to a higher standard just by virtue of being in the military and having that additional training? I don't know, what do you say? I bet before this moment you hadn't even thought about it. Because I hadn't. I looked online trying to find the perfect resource for this episode because I talked about PTSD and substance abuse. If you or anyone you know is suffering from a mental or substance use disorder, you can call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Hotline. And the call is free, confidential, they're open 24-7, and they're available 365 days a year, which means they're open on Christmas, New Year's, and every day of the year. They can be reached at 1-800-662-4357, and I'll link that website on my show notes. Calling this number will link you with service providers and support groups in your very own area. All right. I'm wishing everyone a safe holiday. Please be smart. Please have a plan. And please, please, please follow the plan. Also, don't drive the next morning after a bender. Stay in your bed, binging on true crime shows and eating pizza and drinking ginger ale. The world can wait. This is my 10th episode. I can't believe it. I have made it to the double digits. Woohoo! All I want for the holidays is for my listeners to rate and review the show. It means the world to me and really is the only way to support the show at the moment. Follow me on social media, Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and on my Facebook page at Military True Crime. There's so many places that you can find me. Just so everyone knows, I'm not releasing a new episode next week because I plan on cuddling with my hubby and my babies and probably binging some IDTV and some new Oxygen shows. But don't worry, I'll keep digging to bring you more military murder stories next year. Shh, must book another podcast.